I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson straight from Disneyland. Yeah. Disney World. It's really in Florida. World, yeah. World, world. Well, welcome back, Sam. We're going to be breaking down before we get into your vacation and all the details there that everybody's wondering. Mm. Um, Here's what I like about the offseason. It's both good and bad to get offseason quotes. Everybody's in the best shape of their life, but sometimes there are some intriguing quotes that tell you a little bit of information about the team, about new players, about usage patterns, whatever it might be. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Ryan Leaf quote. <laughs> you just read Ryan Leaf's going to... It's just the a headline. Ryan Leaf details where Tom Brady can improve. I'm glad we're finally getting that information. Friend of the show, Ryan Leaf. Don't, don't trash Ryan. I'm not trashing him. I'm just saying. Him back. Ryan Leaf detailing where Tom Brady can improve is a funny headline. It is, a, it is a funny headline. I'll give you that. Um, anyway, so PFF.com, we have a, uh, an off-season NFL press conference quotes live tracker. Ben Cooper wrote this for us over at PFF.com. It's a lot of work to listen to these, come up with some analysis off them. We're going to pull some of the best quotes because I love it. I love quote season and trying to figure out what to do with them. Hmm. But uh, how was your vacation, buddy? Uh, it was good. Um, got to visit the grandparents, Scout's grandparents rather than mine. Not yours? Uh, no, my parents. Uh, went to Disney, which is like an amazing just money extraction enterprise they've got going there. It's actually phenomenal. Just How about the marketing? As soon as you go there, it just the branding of it is just Yeah, but immaculate. also I think they've like nailed the pricing for everything is just about worth it in terms of, all right, I know this is a ripoff and I know this is gouging me. On the other hand, I'm here with an eight-year-old who wants the stupid T-shirt and a hat. And it's just about, you know, just about doable. This is already after you've sunk the money into the tickets and the transport and the priority parking, because otherwise you'd be parking halfway to Nebraska. All these kinds of, like, everything they have. A, everything costs money. And B, everything is priced just to the point where it's like, ah, I mean, it is worth it, but I'm upset. Do you upset. get the wristband to pay with stuff? No, because... The restrictions with COVID, they've suspended some things that don't seem to make much sense to me. But so the wristbands make it much worse. Yeah. You just kind of, oh, just scan it. Just right. Scan my wristband. But the fast pass thing would be good, but they didn't have that. So that was unfortunate. Yeah. You got to do, you got to fast pass if you're going to. Wasn't an option. Go. They didn't have yeah, it. Yeah. Normally. Also, now, right now, so you, you think masks are gone. Masks are gone unless you're on transport or indoors. And indoors counts like a roof. Like the like the merry-go-round thing? What do you call that here? Carousel, merry-go-round, whatever those oh, so things are. So mask on, mask off everywhere? Yes. So merry-go-round was apparently an indoor event, even though the, like, it's just a roof. It's not indoors. There's no doors. And yet you have to have a freaking mask on in 90-degree Florida heat. So that was just trust the science. reasonably un, unfun. All right, let's get into it. Wait, um, when, when I was gone, 
you clearly have done no drumming up or driving oh, a business. I, I did. To the charity drive. So the kids. There's a lot of the, pressure on me to run the show by myself. I, I know, did forget about. You've fallen over. Go ahead. Tell the them The Make-A-Wish Foundation, the tri-state area one, uh, we're, run, we're raising money for them. Uh, the PFF NFL podcast, we're trying to raise $1,500, um, which will go to the kids and have the byproduct of me having to sit here dressed in your ridiculous old minor league baseball gear. It's going to look including great. Including like a, a base or including like a dustbin lid sized glove, whatever freakish size your cleats are and the XXXXXL pants and top. Well, so, let's work together and make this thing happen yes. this week. My pinned tweet, PFF underscore Sam, it's my pinned tweet for GoFundMe where we're raising the money. Uh, get in there and donate. Every little bit helps, and it helps the kids. All right. And other people. Do they do other people like make a wish, older people? I'm not just sure. kids. I think it's generally kids. Yeah. But either way, it'll be great, anyway, and it's a good call. we'll all benefit here yes. as well. So it'll be great. So go do that. P- at PFF underscore Sam. Let's get that thing moving. So we can see Sam dressed up as an idiot. Minor league Steve. Oh, sorry. I'm not an idiot. Not an idiot? I was almost a major league baseball player. You were? So close. Yeah. Major league bullpen. I was in the bullpen for two days. Huh. In spring training. And never pitched. Huh. Did I ever tell the story about oh, the time that the announcer thought that I was pitching? <laughs> I don't think so. So <clears throat> in uh, this is worth it, right? I, well, let's so find in, out. what happens in minor league spring training, you have people that are actually invited to major league camp and they get, you know, uniforms with their name on the back and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I'm in minor league camp. And what happens is in spring training with pitchers, you don't, you're just trying to get your work in. So they, they plan out the day and it's like, this guy's going to go four and this guy's got one inning, one inning, whatever. But they bring guys up from the minors in case a guy hits their pitch limit and you have backups. So I got to do that and usually take the best guys from the minors who have earned it, whatever. So I got I earned it twice. Mm-hmm. So two days, I was the back I was a backup for a major league game. I wasn't on the list, but it was like if somebody hit their pitch limit or got rocked or whatever, I'd go in. So the other guy who came up with me this particular game was a Japanese pitcher by the name of Keiichi Yabu. And Yabu, he was in he was a major leaguer. I mean, he, the guy was up and down forever, but he was a minor leaguer with us that year. So they just give you this giant uniform with no name on it. And you pick a number, and I was like 98. So I was number 98 in the bullpen, no name. He was 99. So he, uh, somebody hit their pitch limit, whatever. So he goes in, in like the seventh inning, whatever it is, he goes in to pitch. And he's getting absolutely lit up. And my parents are listening to this game. And the announcer, very famous announcer, John Miller, um, who did Sunday Night Baseball. And he was like the voice of Sunday Night Baseball, voice of the Giants. And he thinks it's me. So this whole time, he's like, Palazzola really struggling with control. Mm. Another walk. There's a hit. And then Yabu gives up a grand slam. And my parents are listening to this game thinking <laughs> it's like my, my like spring training major league debut. And I'm getting absolutely lit up. And then like after the grand slam, he's like, oh, wait, that's Keiichi Yabu. That's, uh, that's not Steve Palazzola. Sorry about that. Mm. So my only time actually being discussed Surely. in a major league game was for Would there not have been like an obvious up. height giveaway there, no? Yeah, but like I mean, John, look, I have no idea who this guy is, but I'm best guessing he's not six ten. He's not. Yeah. He's about six one, six six feet maybe. Yeah. But John wouldn't know me at all. Right. Okay. John's John, the announcer, is just he's the Giants announcer. He wouldn't have any idea. You ever think that that like stuck with people? You know, there's some guy just I don't know some other team somewhere. It's like oh yeah, Palazzola. That's the guy that got lit up for yeah, a grand got lit slam up, right. on the radio that well, time. Luckily, 
no, other teams aren't listening to the Giants spring training broadcast. Uh, you don't know. Play. But that Look, was my uh, – I was closest. there scouting. In baseball, it's I was listening on the radio scouting. <laughs> right? That was the closest I got to the big leagues. So, anyway, let's get into this uh, press conference season and some of these quotes. Now, again, a lot of them are like, this guy's in the best shape of his life. Uh, let's get some good ones. Okay, let's start with the Buffalo Bills and Josh Allen. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the notable quote from, again, Ben Cooper, PFF.com. Josh Allen on what he needs to work on. I think there's a couple, here's the quote, I think there's a couple of things it boils down to, decision-making as far as where the ball should go in any given situation based on what the defense is doing, understanding and better in situational football, ball security in the pocket, and when I take off running, routes as well, the in-cut throws to my left. So this is Josh Allen saying where to go with the ball, situational football, ball security in the pocket, especially when he takes off running, and then the in-cut and throws to his left. Okay. Honestly, I think that's an impressive that's an impressive list for a guy who's coming off of his career <laughs> year and done a lot of in a lot of good things. That's a lot of I think self-awareness for uh for where he can get better. And I think that bodes well. Yeah. It's also just listing like most quarterbacks' flaws generally, you know. Don't don't ruin this entire episode by saying none of this matters. I'm not. I'm just saying that he's listed a bunch of things that, you know, are fairly ubiquitous amongst quarterbacks. So, you know, you would expect those things. I mean, he's right. Like, his turnover-worthy play rate last year is still pretty high. That is, if you're going to pick a thing for Josh Allen to improve on, that would be a pretty good start. Like, cutting out, going from 3.4% turnover-worthy plays to, you know, 24 would be a pretty impressive needle mover. So... I'm with him. I like that uh, Ben also backed up the throws to the left with uh, some numbers. Passer rating of only 96 when thrown to the left compared to 119 elsewhere. So there's some some truth there. I like when that backs up the data. So Josh Allen's going to improve. You think? This is working well. This is working well. Because you've been like hammering all offseason that he's going to regress. I think there's some natural regression to happen there. Again, it's not into... Did we make a bet on that? Josh we only Allen. bet on Daniel Jones. Yeah. No, I think if Josh Allen's overall grade drops from 90 to, like, the low 80s or something, it's not a the surprise. low 80s? Wow. Yeah. God, you're just hating the guy. Yeah, I think, I mean, for a guy that he was mid-60s, mid-60s, 90. So what's interesting to me, though, with, with Josh Allen and some of these other players, this was the case of, the case with uh, Lamar Jackson last year. I mean, obviously, it, it didn't go this way. It's the case of Baker Mayfield this year. Um, for players that what they did was a potential outlier and, and um, Justin Herbert as well. What they did last year was a potential outlier regression candidate overall. But there are areas you would expect them to get better at from this year or from last year to this year, which could offset the really sure. expected regression overall. Like where, so with Josh Allen, you're saying, okay, yeah, that's a massive jump forward from like where mid 60s to 90 grade. Like, that's a ridiculous jump um, that nobody, nobody, I think, without a vested interest in Josh Allen saw that coming. Is that a fair description of what that is? Like Josh yeah. Allen fans and stands and the Bills were like, oh yeah, Josh Allen's a superstar. Like he's he's ready on for his this, way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Everybody else who doesn't have a vested interest in Buffalo is like, I don't really see the Josh Allen thing. Um, so, yeah, you would say, all right, that's a huge leap, and he's probably going to swing back a little bit next year. On the other hand, th- that list of things that he, he cranked out 
there's still a lot of room to get better with those things. And he has gotten better. Like those are, those are areas where he has already improved. And if he improves again, there's still quite a lot of meat on the bone to offset any kind of regression. Like his turnover worthy play rate has sequentially gone from 5.1% to 4.3 to 3.5. If that goes down to 2.7, that's buying you quite a lot of room to regress in other areas, just like Justin Herbert. Like, his numbers under pressure were ridiculous in terms of that's going to come down. But if he takes a step forward in any other area, he could offset a lot of that immediately. Or if you just cut his pressure rate by 4 That too, right. Or if, or if both those things happen at the same time. I will say I'm looking at Josh Allen's stable, unstable page, all part of PFFIQ, uh, available to you, NFL team customers. Um, and when you look NFL at the listeners. Not, not the listeners. Yeah. Sorry. Just NFL teams only. Uh, and agencies, if you're an agency. Um, the stable metrics, Josh Allen last year ranked above the 75th percentile in only one, which was first and second down grade. Very stable. Um, his negatives were still a little bit below average, so it was still a little bit high. He was above average in all the stable metrics, but not above the 75th percentile. He was above the 75th percentile in all of the unstable metrics. So that's play under pressure. That's outside the pocket grade, which I would say, you know, it's part of Josh Allen's game. He always makes a ton of plays outside the pocket. was awesome at that at Wyoming. He was uh, above the 75th percentile, third and fourth down on play action grade and in positively graded throws. Now, the positively grades, they fluctuate generally because of your supporting cast. That's still intact for Allen. So I'm not saying everything's going to regress, but I think there's some regression to be had there from Josh Allen. But I think from, a, you know, who the kid is and all that stuff, I think, it was it was really good to hear to hear those quotes. Yeah, but he's also something of an enigma in that again, like the the jump he's already had in the clean or in the stable metrics has been insane. Like year one and two, all of those numbers in the stable stuff were down in the, like the twenty the twenty first percentile and lower for all the stable stuff. So he's taken a jump already from like I mean avoiding negative plays for his first two years was the zeroth percentile. Who's gone from that to wherever he was last year? Which oh, he is, already bucked. Right, the, he bucked a lot of trends. Which is not in last you know year. not above the seventy fifth percentile, but like he's taken it to a completely different world. Like he was the forty first percentile, I think, last year. Oh no, the avoids negatives one's just updated, but that that was his worst. Everything else was a significantly higher. So he's already taken a massive leap in those areas. So even if it isn't necessarily as high as you would want to see, again, that's not to say he can't take another step. All right, here's a quick one from the Carolina Panthers. It's edge defender Brian Burns. He said, Hassan Reddick is going to make me go even harder because there's going to be a little competition now in the room for who's going to get the sack the fastest. And also, he's going to take a lot of attention off me. The offensive line is going to have to pick their poison. So the Panthers, so there's two things that are notable because Ben also did a really nice job, pff.com, of putting other points, brief ones, that says safety Jeremy Chin will, is set to primarily play safety in 2021. So the two points here from a Carolina defensive perspective, I think they've been one of the interesting cases around the league, the investment that they've made in the defense, uh, a forward-looking type of coach in Matt Rule, the way he's built his entire team and the structure. They didn't have a great pass rush last year. Brian Burns was excellent, but they bring in Hassan Reddick to be that speed rusher off the edge after a couple failed seasons, essentially, as a linebacker. He emerged down the stretch for Arizona last year, so Reddick comes in on a one-year deal opposite Brian Burns and then Jeremy Chin the guy if you guys have premium stats 
you know, all part of your PFF Elite package, you go check out Jeremy Chin's page, and it looks like he lines up at linebacker, on the line of scrimmage, at uh, box safety, at free safety. He does it all. Chin played everywhere last year, a very challenging role, but they're saying he's going to play safety this year for whatever that's worth. So I don't know if that means a more consistent role, but Chin showed a ton of versatility last year, even though there were a lot of missed tackles and some big plays made up as uh, given up as well. It's interesting how similar Hassan Reddick and Brian Burns' numbers were last year. Yeah. Um, 57 total pressures for Burns, 56 for Reddick. They were broadly similar in terms of distribution as well, like sacks, hits, and hurries. They both had 35 hurries. The sack and hits were a, a little bit different, a uh, couple here or there. Um, their PFF pass rushing grades were very similar, 87 versus 83. Overall, again, pretty similar, 77, 73. So they are two players who last season at least graded very similarly. Um, the big thing is is really just, like, was that a breakout year from Reddick, or did he just have a few really good games and ultimately is still more of a like a weird speed specialist rusher that doesn't necessarily have you know a massive role at the nfl level like what do you have like six sacks against andrew thomas from one game um against the giants not all against andrew thomas most yeah. of them yeah uh so I, there's definitely a an interesting scenario where reddick did break out and if you just put him as a speed rushing edge player the way he you know basically should have been since college you now have two of those guys. And Burns, I think, is developing into a lot more than that. Can be more, like, he's not going to be, I think, ever particularly good against the run, but he's got a lot more versatility to his pass rush than Reddick does. But theoretically, two of those guys coming off the edge at the same time actually does make that a very tricky defensive front to deal with. Then, if you can factor in any kind of development from last year's uh, rookies, um, you know, Brown in the middle or Gross Matos from the edge, edge slash middle, like that could be pretty nasty quite quickly. Derek Brown did play much better down the stretch. And if he, he wasn't completely as advertised, like he, a lot of his bad run grade ga- though was more, I think, mental, like missed gaps and assignments and stuff like that. But the dude can push the pocket. The dude mm-hmm. can, he's just strong, physical. If he is that guy that's just, you know, a rock in the middle of the defense, it does, it does help. It offsets. Burns and Reddick being more like pass for, pass rush first players. So I just think the Panthers' defense is um, fun to see how they're being built with Reddick there as well. Um, here's a Bears quote. <clears throat> Head coach Matt Nagy, Justin Fields has the mentality of rip your heart out. You got to see a taste of that with him today. He made a nice throw to Demir Bird down the sideline, and then that ball just took off. So there's not much to analyze here other than the Bears are excited about this one throw from Justin Fields, which isn't surprising because the dude can throw the football really well. Yeah, and not just one throw. I mean, there's a quote out there from Darnell Mooney, who was like the first throw he, the first pass he threw me. He was like smiling in midair, you know, <laughs> like it's different. Like the, he doesn't just have a good arm. He has an arm that's like noticeably different when you're out there from an Andy Dalton. And this is one of those areas where, you know, if you do go to training camps or watch those things, and you start looking at the quarterbacks rep after rep after rep, you can see the difference in arm strength just from like how it comes out of the hand of the dude with the big arm versus the dude who's the backup and doesn't really have a big arm versus the guy with the noodle who's like I you did, know, lobbing I did, it out there like, like me. I did reference that when um, Renner was on the show on Thursday. Although when we went to Jets camp a few years ago, it was the opposite. Remember the starter 
was well Ryan Fitzpatrick hmm. the ball was not coming out well right. but the offense was crisp Geno Smith the ball was coming out great and the offense was just off from yeah. a timing standpoint but even I mean whether or not how how the guy's playing is is a different thing but you can definitely notice the difference in yeah. like and it's actually it's it's probably more pronounced than you would expect it to be which for when you're when you're a receiver particularly one that's sort of floating between first team second team third team or whatever that must actually mess with you a fair bit like the the difference in velocity of that ball arriving on you when you're running your route between the starter and the backup and the third string can be pretty insane so if you're out there you know running with Andy Dalton and then suddenly Justin Fields rocks up and fires this laser through your numbers like it, it is going to make a difference you're going to notice that pretty quickly um and for a lot of these guys I think it's it's a good thing I mean ultimately there's probably a limit you know when Brett Favre's out there trying to break your fingers with every slant pass it's something that might annoy you after a while but when you're used to just a sort of you know average nothing arm and then Justin Fields rocks up and you're getting these bullets right into your hands I would imagine that feels pretty good quite quite you know at, at the beginning and then it's like all right now let's see if he can actually play the game and put it in the right place and diagnose coverages and all those kinds of things but from just a yeah this like this is getting on me pretty quickly I like that I imagine we're going to hear a lot of that as training camp starts too Justin Fields how he's throwing the ball how the ball's coming out of his hand so it's only starting for the Bears uh, here's a good one from the Bengals uh, head coach Zach Taylor saying I'm really excited about T Higgins I think you saw in the last couple of games last year that that switch kind of flipped for him a little bit He's one of the most detailed receivers. He's got a really high football IQ, PFF IQ. It also makes sense to him. It also makes sense to him. We've got a good receiving core, but I think T has been really impressive this offseason. I mean, I think with, with T Higgins, I'm not saying he's becoming the forgotten guy, but he gets pushed down the depth chart by one spot, potentially by Jamar Chase. Mm. But this is the point of drafting Jamar Chase. You have T Higgins in year two, Chase is a rookie, Tyler Boyd, I'm not saying he's the number three, but as another option, to, Boyd could be the number two option from a target standpoint this year. Who knows? But him being the slot, I, I'm just I, I can't wait to watch this this trio for the Bengals. And Auden Tate is still there as yeah. a, just a big monster receiver who has played pretty well when out there. It's it might happen quicker, but you might see a Corey Davis like performance from T Higgins this season, right? Where suddenly he doesn't have to be that number one guy. He can be the number two to Jamar Chase, and he's almost the the coverage is going to go away from him. You know, the coverage is going to roll towards Jamar Chase, and like T. Higgins is a really good receiver. And if suddenly you start rolling things away from him, he can make plays and, and punish you for that. I mean, did he he came up just short? Was it of Chris's rookie record, or did he break it? Did he tie it? Damn it should check that out anyway the season's a blur now that's a long time Chris yeah. came into the league in what 81 so yeah. that's a record that stood since before you or I were born which doesn't happen very often in that's, today's that's NFL true. um Sorry, so, Chris. so T Higgins is that good and he's just been moved down the depth chart he now gets to go up against number two cornerbacks for the majority of the time if Joe Burrow comes back and is the same guy if Jamar Chase is as advertised I, I don't see a reason why T Higgins won't have a very good season so uh, among the other points in brief it says QB Joe Burrow feels like his velocity on throws has improved after offseason work when I was talking to Renner again on the Thursday podcast go check that out we had a lot of fun talking about PFF theories looking forward a little bit to the 2022 NFL draft uh, he I mentioned last year it felt like Tua 
got on the field and just kind of felt small and the arm didn't feel great. I said, you know, Mike, has that happened with you? He said, Burrow last year. He thought his arm looked below average. He thought it looked well below what he expected out of LSU. But you could point to a couple times in NFL history. Drew Brees' arm got better. Tom Brady's arm absolutely got better mm-hmm. from his rookie season. And this was, this was kind of like our old theory, right? You can't teach accuracy, you can't teach pocket presence and feel, but you can add just a little bit of zip to the ball. I do think this is an important thing for Burrow. I didn't think his arm at was below average at LSU, but there were definitely some throws that were kind of like bang, bang in college where I'm like, ah, that's probably broken up at the NFL level. It's not concerning, but you'd rather see more zip. If this is true, this is a big development for Burrow. Yeah, and I, I may be um, projecting too much to this, but it feels like getting sidelined with a significant knee injury and essentially leaving you with nothing but like working out in terms of yeah rehabbing and working out from a sort of static platform that doesn't really involve football might actually be a really good thing for improving the strength in the areas you need to get better at arm strength right like doing nothing but like sitting in a chair and working on those weird muscles that you're not really utilizing when you're running plays or doing standard drop back stuff and trying to work on your technique is probably actually a really good thing for improving your basic ability to fire a ball using nothing but arm strength so i could definitely see a world where joe burrow does have a stronger arm coming back from this my concern with him is like what is that how healthy is that knee and does it have any lingering effects in terms of not physically but that's the kind of thing that leaves a mental scar for sure oh absolutely that, like that Dante, Culpepper, Dante Culpepper came back the knee was theoretically 100 percent like doctors weren't saying oh you're never playing again like right. that's you're done he had his knee reconstructed he was good but was never the same guy like whatever it was Dante Culpepper never trusted that knee to the same extent that he did before it got torn to shreds and just was never the same quarterback again um I don't think that's going to happen to Burrow, but like that's the concern. It's the mental side of it rather than the physical. A couple of Browns ones here. Head coach Kevin Stefanski. Versatility is a big deal. Demetric Felton hmm. played running back and wide receiver previously in college. He's done both with us already. He's been in both meetings. There's been times when he's a running back for that day, a wide receiver the next day. It does speak to his versatility, his ability to mentally handle that. So watch out. Fantasy football. Felton could be a running back or a wide receiver when they did draft him now remember Felton's the guy who had like the first percentile workout as a running back or as a receiver even though he looked fast on the football field well it was like first percentile as a running back and fifth percentile it was, like, it was it bad was catastrophic regardless of which position you're putting him at it was so bad but man I just I love him as a football player I thought he was going to test better uh, but this kind of this is what the Browns were adding this year and it, it's not exactly the box where we said the starting roster is so good you add anything but the Browns have such a good two deep that they're adding speedster Anthony Schwartz and running back wide receiver uh, uh, running back wide receiver hybrids and Felton. I just love what they could add as complementary pieces here. Do you think that that workout was so bad and so far different from what I think people expected him to do that you almost toss it out as like, well, that just isn't right. I would look into like, remember it. Remember so- Dalvin Cook's time? Where it's like Dalvin Cook, what did he run like a four 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 or something? Yeah, I didn't like care Dalvin Cook he... is not a four 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 guy. That is, dude, that dude is one of the fastest guys Game on the field. Is incredible in any situation. So I don't care what the forty is. He is a four three human. Yeah, I think with Felton. So I, I, I was actually talking to an agent recently about another prospect who had a disastrous 
disastrous workout, horrible, horrible workout. And he basically said, well, the guy, he put on 20 pounds, right? So usually yeah. the agents control, they're like, hey, we want, like, if you weigh in here, like, they, they strategize the best way to do this. Well, sometimes it just doesn't work. I mean, there's only, you can't, you can't hit every box. Not every player can hit every box, right? right. If you're Calvin Johnson and you're like 6'5", 245, and run a 4'3", you're, like, you're laughing. It doesn't matter what you do. You can do whatever light you like, and your number's going to be great across the board. If you're a Cameron Dantzler and you weigh like 170 pounds, you have a choice to make. Because right. at that point, it's like, well, and you're not, you know, you're not a 4'2 guy. So do I lean into the fact that I'm fast enough and I've got good tape at this size, so deal with it? Or do you try and prove that you can play at 190 at the NFL level and hope that it doesn't torpedo your ability to run fast in a straight line? And that, you know, Cameron Dancer, I think, tried to play that game and just got wrecked. Um, Devontae Smith went the other way and went, screw it, I'm 170 pounds, even if he was like 166 or whatever. Just went, this is what I play at. Yeah. I'm fast enough. I'm not even going to run. I'm fast enough. The tape shows you, pick me or don't. This is what I do. But I think all these guys that aren't, that aren't the sort of tick every box have that choice to make, and some of them try and play the game and game it, you know, try and put on the weight for this way in, run at this time, and try and hit all the boxes at different times. And some of them, it just doesn't work. Yeah, in Felton's case, it wasn't, he didn't necessarily weigh in. No, I don't heavy. think that explains him. I it think wasn't, he was just but bad. Other, yeah, so I don't know. But either way, um, he's a pretty good football player. The other point um, that was made as like a bullet here, Anthony Walker set to quarterback the defense. This speaks to, I think, the PFF grading process. And the, the one thing we acknowledge is we, we're not, uh, we're not at, we're not charting or putting a number to, you know that you know guy in the huddle and Colin plays and all that stuff. Anthony Walker's been up and down from a grading standpoint. I would say of all the moves that the Browns have made, from an on-field perspective, Anthony Walker is one of the worst just from a grading standpoint. But we acknowledge here there's something too. This happened with London Fletcher mm. late in his career. He was like the famous famous example for us, right? He was a great locker room guy, great. Uh, you know, get everybody lined up type of guy. I think that's Anthony Walker for the Browns. And I think now that's probably more important than it's ever been. Um, not just because that role is important, but most linebackers aren't good right now. Or not, most linebackers are getting wrecked now, whether they're good or not. Yeah. So if a guy is grading badly. We might have a very good linebacker on the show at some point, and I want to ask him all about that. Yeah. We're working on some stuff. So if a guy is playing badly and is doing all that important stuff in terms of the green dot and calling the defense and getting everybody lined up, it's probably a bigger issue. It's probably a bigger plus now than it was in the past when most linebackers were grading really well because it was an easier position to play. Now everybody, like most people are grading badly because it's not easy. They're getting destroyed anyway. So at least have a guy who's contributing in the other areas. Hey guys, PFF has partnered with Symbol, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L, -L, the stock market for sports that allows you to trade sports teams like stocks and earn cash payouts when your teams win. Symbol has blended sports and the stock market to offer you a great new way to invest and profit off your favorite teams. You can invest in MLB right now, earn daily cash payouts, and if there's another big move in the NFL, in free agency, still happening here in June, or big trades, you can uh, also you know, invest at the right time and see your team's stock rise or fall. Use the promo code PFF. Deposit $10 at symbol.app slash PFF to earn a free PFF annual subscription. That's promo code PFF with a $10 deposit at symbol.app slash PFF to earn a free annual 
subscription. All right, speaking of linebackers, let me find this other one here. Dallas Cowboys, plethora of linebackers and a new defensive coordinator, friend of the show, Dan Quinn, says every once in a while you can see, you can just see a person that's on a mission. And I think, I think that's what I've seen from Leighton Vander Esch from the time I arrived. You could just feel the energy and intensity that he was putting into his workouts and the meetings. You could feel the urgency. Now, this one's interesting because of how much Dallas has just invested at linebacker. Mm-hmm. And we're two years removed from Jalen Smith and Leighton Vander Esch being probably the best linebacker duo in the NFL. They've disappointed, especially last year, between injuries and performance. Micah Parsons is in. Jabril Cox is in. What is the role for Leighton Vander Esch now in Dan Quinn's defense? Yeah, and Leighton Vander Esch in particular is the one though, whose performance has been re- like really headed in the wrong direction. I mean, as a rookie, he had a, a PFF grade of 85, um, 82 in coverage. It was, it was green across the board, played really well. That's also his career high in terms of number of snaps, 894. So almost 900 snaps that year. He's basically had that again in the two years since. So 510 and then 460, the two subsequent years. And the grades have gone to 58 and then 50. So his performance has fallen off a cliff. Injuries have torpedoed him to the point where he's been on the field half as much. Um, you've gone from having a guy who looked like the best linebacker in that class, which looked like a really good linebacker class. Remember, that was the, that's Roquan Smith's class, right? That's Tremaine Edmonds' class. It was a really good linebacker group that year. And Leighton Vander Esch looked like the star right out of the gate. And then since then... It's all gone wrong from it for him. But I think that rookie year showed you that he can be that guy. Um, but now with all the players that Dallas has added, with the fact that they've already paid Jalen Smith the big money, he's the one I think under the most pressure in terms of like if you don't show it right now, particularly with a new defensive coordinator, new system coming in, now's your one shot. And it's it's do or die for Leighton Van Der Esch right now. Yeah, there's so much potential there. Um, we'll see if We'll see who's actually there on opening day, though, for Dallas. Um, there's a lot of linebacker talk. I can't skip, skip over this one. It's the Detroit, Detroit Lions head coach, Dan Campbell. It's on linebackers again. We mm. did not want to put an emphasis on size. This is surprising to me. I would rather have someone who's 220 and could freaking fly at inside linebacker. That just fits what we're doing. We asked Jelani Tavai to shed some weight, and he did that, and he is moving better. Now, what does that turn into? I don't know, but he's putting the work in. Tavai, as uh, Ben notes here in the article, Ben Cooper... Uh, Tavai only had one game grade above 70. He was a surprising draft pick a couple years ago, coveted by the Lions, of course, and Matt Patricia, but also reportedly by the Patriots. They've always had their type at linebacker, which generally trends closer to those dudes who are 250, even here in 2021. So they're taking this 250 linebacker that ranked 96th Hmm. out of 99 qualifying linebackers, trying to get them to slim down and see what they can do. But uh, Campbell saying he wants speed at linebacker. And that, you know, Hey, we kept linking them to Micah Parsons. If uh, Panay Sewell wasn't on the board there at seven overall, I could see them taking Parsons. Yeah. Going back to I mean, him. he has speed and size. He so does. He's, he he's another one of those guys taking all the boxes. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> Devai graded badly enough last year that you try something. Because <laughs> yeah. running it back is not going to work, even in a different system. Like, that guy gave up a pass rating of 140 into his coverage now linebackers give up a hefty passer rating anyway but it's like 105 for yeah, it's the usually in the low hundreds yeah right? for the average linebacker so he's 35 points worse didn't have a pick didn't have a pass breakup gave up three touchdowns um gave up 87.5 percent of the passes thrown his way were caught and it's not like his run defense was any better so 
yeah, Tavai was pretty catastrophic last year. So let's see what happens if we shed some weight and, and have a better defensive system around him. I don't hate it. And I, that, I think, is one... Let's put that in the plus Dan Campbell column in terms of smart things yeah. said as opposed to cliched things that sound dinosaur-like. All right, here's, here's one we discussed a lot at the time, and it's starting to come to fruition it, as we head into year three for Rashawn Gary, the edge defender for the Green Bay Packers. This is outside linebacker coach Mike Smith. Because of where Rashawn got drafted in the first round, well, people think he's going to come in, be a starter, be an all-pro. It don't work like that. If you force a guy to get into the game early enough in his career and force him to play when he's not ready, you can do a lot of damage. I expect a big jump from him in year three. Just to turn back the clock a little bit, Rashawn Gary was the guy coming out of Michigan where we said we just wouldn't take him in the first round. Production-wise, wouldn't take him in the first round at a position where production is the biggest indicator of future performance. And then when you compare, when you pair production with athleticism, the hit rate for edge defenders is like 90%. It's incredible. Gary was the guy who did not have great production, but had an incredible workout, 277 pounds, could move, had everything you're looking for. He had been, again, I don't want to use the word bust, but he had been a subpar player until week 16 of last year, the snow game in Tennessee, 90.7 overall grade. He had back-to-back -back grades in the 90s, had an 81 grade in the divisional round against the Rams. This is one of those things, do we... Do we look back and say, okay, he's turned? this is the athletic guy that started to turn a corner as he did over the last three or four games, or is it just one of those late season, small sample size anomalies? Mike Smith apparently thinks, okay, Rashawn Gary has turned the corner, and overall he did take great strides last year with 46 total pressures. Yeah, he had a lot of good games last year. Well, he had some bad ones in there as well, but there were a lot of games. It wasn't just that Tennessee game. There were a lot of games in there where you thought, okay, this is impressive. And what was interesting, I think, is that a lot of them came against good opposition. Like it wasn't just, you see that every now and again where a player has a bunch of really good games and all of them came against catastrophic players. They just lucked into a bunch of easy games and it explains it, but Gary's weren't. Like, okay, Tennessee's offensive line was in ribbons, but he had a good game um, against Los Angeles. Their, their offensive line was fine. He had a good game against Indianapolis. Their offensive line was fine. Um, so I think he's definitely been moving in the right direction. Let's see what he has this year. To me, maybe the more interesting part of that quote, though, was the idea that playing a guy too early can actually do lasting damage at a position that isn't quarterback. Like, we have that debate all the time yeah. about quarterbacks. It's, well, what happens if you put them in? They're not ready. Do you actually harm their development? Should you sit them for the year? And that's the only time anybody thinks about that. But what about other positions? What about edge rusher or linebacker or any other spot, can you harm a guy's development by putting him on the field too early? I think most of the time, nobody actually considers that or thinks that, no, it's just, you baptize them by fire. If they sink, you know, sink or swim, it, it, even if they play badly right away, it's not gonna cripple their development, but he I thinks it might do. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that says that. Um, even from a quarterback standpoint, I think a lot of that's anecdotal. Like Blaine Gabbert looked like a disaster when he started his career. Like, would he have been better if he just sat for two years? I, Who knows? It, there's the Derek, you know, the the David Carr example, and you know, it's it's really tough to really pinpoint that. I will say, offensive linemen, as I reference all the time here on the show, they get better by you taking their lumps, right? It, it would 
it would make sense mentally to be like, oh, man, this dude's going to get whooped for two years. That's going to mess him up. But it actually does kind of like, you know, uh, help you develop well, a little so, bit. But that, so that isn't necessarily the same thing. Like offensive linemen definitely get better. Um, they have a slower learning curve, I guess, than some other positions where generally by year two or three is where they take that step forward. But what happens if that offensive lineman just wasn't even ready to get it to get get his lumps right what happens if that offensive lineman is just getting beat up because he's not at that he's not even at the level where you can put him in there to start to start that development process like how many offensive linemen have been broken because they didn't have a period of development to begin with before they've started the the sort of in-game learning curve that like would be an intriguing thing I don't know. There's there's no way of studying that, right? Because any highly drafted offensive lineman is getting put in immediately. Um, the ones that aren't ready are just the guys that flame out. All right, let's go to the Kansas City Chiefs because I think this is going to be the big story for them. This is Patrick Mahomes. Noah Gray, the rookie tight end, has been really good. I think he has a lot. He, he I think he has kind of that veteran type skill set where he knows how to get himself open, even if it's not exactly what the play is designed to do. Oh man, that's that's great for Patrick. Mm. He knows how to get his eyes back, be on the quarterback's timing. And then Cornell Powell, he's a beast, man. He's he's big out there. He's running across the field, making a, t- a lot of big catches in tough, contested spots. So this is when Mahomes was asked about the rookies. Uh, tight end Noah Gray, wide receiver Cornell Powell. Uh, all offseason, we've talked about the offensive line overhaul in Kansas City, and I've voiced my concerns that you know, I think Kansas City goes as far as their third, fourth, fifth playmakers go, right? And it seems like Mahomes is at least early on impressed with the two guys that they did add in the draft, tight end Noah Gray, who are draft guide, per Mike Renner said, not really a field stretcher, underneath type of receiver, good feel for, uh, you know, getting open against zones. Cornell Powell, he's more of a big threat. Uh, again, not dynamic necessarily, but pretty good route runner. Uh, with Mahomes and knowing how much attention Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill are going to get like this is all they is, is this all they really need there do they need what sammy Watkins could have been as their third option or do they just need some guys that are dependable going to catch the passes that are thrown their way even while it's still a tyree kill travis kelsey led offense this is one of those great no lose uh situations from mahomes though right it's like travis kelsey tyree kill cemented locked in unquestioned number one weapon for him so with those guys parked to the side a bit, it's like, yeah, yeah, let's throw the rookie a little bit of love. Let's show, let's show that I appreciate what they can do. Let's try and build their confidence right out of the gate and see if they can actually, you know, contribute in a way that helps me out year one. So I think that's just uh, you know, savvy leadership from Mahomes. Veteran move there from the, uh, the young Already. superstar. Already. As yeah. he heads Throwing in compliments at the right guy right out of the gate, see what happens. Well, I, I, I honestly, I, quotes or not, I think, you know, their development is is going to be pretty crucial for this offense, right? I mean, having those complementary pieces beyond the top two, um, it's what I'll be looking for with this Kansas City offense now that that offensive line is locked in. I got a great one coming up. There's yeah. going to be a great one for fantasy football. And speaking of fantasy football, if you like fantasy and if you like playing fantasy for money, you need to check out Underdog Fantasy because Underdog's got everything, including season-long and playoff best ball. Best ball is a season-long game where you draft a team like you normally do, but that's it. There's no in-season roster management right up your alley, Sam. Underdog automatically selects your best performance each week, saving you loads of time. 
So go to Underdog Fantasy, deposit $10 using promo code PFF, and you get a free PFF Edge annual subscription. That's promo code PFF. Draft now at Underdog Fantasy. And I have somebody for you to draft. Oh, yeah? Based off this quote. Okay. Los Angeles Chargers. Uh-huh. New offensive coordinator Joe Lombardi says, as much as this offense will resemble New Orleans, Mike Williams plays the X. And the ball always kind of found the X receiver in this offense. So I think there'll be some natural production that comes his way because of the nature of the offense. If I were a betting man, I'd bet on nice numbers coming from him on the stat sheet, that's for sure. So Mike Williams. So this has been an offense that has been, you know, Keenan Allen averaged like nine yards per catch last year. When I was going back through like the receiver tight end rankings, I didn't realize until you start to see how many there are. I didn't realize how many receivers averaged 10 yards per catch, under 10 yards per catch last year. In the sh- like As the passes get shorter and shorter in the NFL, Keenan Allen's not a nine yards per catch type of guy. But that's what he was in this offense last year, high volume. Mike Williams is the downfield threat, though. That dude's, you know, he's averaged chunk, he creates chunk plays. But if he's going to play the X and he's going to be running the Mike Thomas route tree, so to speak, nine million slants, might see Mike Williams be that high volume guy now. Yeah, like, so, <laughs> I mean, the X in New Orleans with Michael Thomas has been different to the X anywhere else. Like, typically the X is the Julio Jones role, the guy who plays out on his own, isolated, out wide running the vertical route tree, whereas New Orleans have had Michael Thomas in the slot half of his life maximizing the fact that people cover the slot differently and you don't have to worry about certain types of coverages and you have free releases and all that kind of thing. That doesn't feel like a tremendously natural fit for Mike Williams with the Chargers. Like him in that role just doesn't... I mean, if you're picking between Mike Williams and Keenan Allen to be that guy, it seems that Keenan Allen is a much more readily available natural fit for that specific role. So either that offense is changing dramatically um, or they're picking a different player for the way you would think that those roles naturally uh, fall. So I'm wondering, so if you're stealing, and there's, there's another quote here that Lombardi is going to take a little bit from New Orleans, a little bit from San Francisco. Nothing's ever, you know, apples to apples, right? But if you're taking a little bit from New Orleans, how much do we glean? New Orleans is not a short passing offense, right? It feels that way because of how they've been under Breeze the last couple of years, but that was more Breeze physical limitations, right? When Breeze, a few years ago, when he was at his best, remember it was Marcus Colston running up the seam. It was, they stretched you vertically and horizontally, but this is an interesting one for Herbert, right? Because I think Justin Herbert last year, there were many games we said, it was only like two or three th- good throws per game. The rest was just okay. It was pretty good, but he just has that arm talent to create those chunk plays. Are there going to be more of these easy, horizontal stretches shorter passing game are they going to take or are they going to take too much off herbert's plate or is there are they going to attack vertically because i think that's a big question here as well that is an interesting tension with the development of justin herbert because he was phenomenal last season and all of the wildly unstable things in terms of play under pressure those big chunk plays you talked about So in theory, you would expect those to regress and the way to sort of offset some of that would be to increase the higher percentage plays and all those kinds of things. The problem with that is like those chunk plays are massively valuable. So in a way, if you're going to have a quarterback who isn't as efficient, who isn't the most efficient quarterback in the world, you want those because those will like one 50 yard bomb offsets an awful lot of misses on a five yard out flip the field man right field flipping arm strength so you're left with this 
these two things working in opposition. One that says you want to dial back on those things and lean into the things that are higher percentage and easier to do because it makes his job and his life easier at the position. And the other thing saying, well, actually, we want those. And if a guy is going to be less efficient, we want more of those. So let's actually let's actually lean into that as a concept and start shooting for those big plays. That's like, you know, the Cam Newton thing a few years ago where Carolina went through this sequence of four or five years trying to figure out what the offense should look like given Cam Newton's unique skill set. There was a period where they tried to dial back those big plays. And they went, well, Cam Newton is a little bit inefficient, so let's ramp, let's make everything a five-yard swing to Christian McCaffrey. The problem with that is, like, Newton's never going to be efficient. So he's never going to be as efficient as you're exp- – never going to be as efficient as what you imagine the baseline for those is. So all you're doing is, like, declawing the guy. You're taking away his most dangerous weapon and forcing him to be just a worse version of other quarterbacks by running with that kind of high-percentage system. I think you, you have a very similar – question with Justin Herbert albeit with way less data data to work from so you don't we don't yet know what Justin Herbert is we kind of had a pretty good idea what Cam Newton is we just didn't know what the best way of deploying him was now you don't know what the best way of deploying Herbert is and you don't really know what he is so this whole idea of building an offense around him in year two is I think a really difficult challenge for that coaching staff just for perspective, Mike Williams' profile since entering the league, he has the fourth highest average depth of target, over 16 yards per target. And because of that, that usually means your yak, your yards after the catch are going to be low, so he's among the worst, but it's more of a it's because he's been used as a downfield threat. He has separated among the worst in the league. And again, that's in, that's the nature of the further you go down the field, the less you're going to separate. Separation percentage goes down. That's when you Again, are, are you open or is it tight coverage? But he offsets that by the 82nd percentile contested catch percentage. So his profile is a lot what we thought coming out of college, right? Yep. Vertical threat, not a great, not necessarily a great route runner that's going to be open all the time, but contested catches, he's caught over 48% of his targets. That's 16th out of 91 qualifiers. So what's being described here is a completely different uh, you just usage pattern for Mike Williams. We'll see if that ends up becoming the case. All right, let's see where else we can go here. New York you, Jets. Hang on, yep. before we jump into the Jets, have you seen, so Stephon Gilmore is potentially not going to show up to the off-season program. That's prompting trade talks and whether he'll be out in New England. Where Did do this you just s- break? Eh, it's trending. Um, where would you stand on Stephon Gilmore? Is he going to be in New England this year? The other thing, by the way, slight gripe. People referring, people need to get a better handle of the term perennial, right? Perennial pro bowler, Stephon Gilmore. Perennial means like always. Stephon Gilmore is a four-time pro bowl player. That is not perennial. Perennial, Merlin Olsen was a perennial pro bowler, right? That dude made 14 straight or something. I missed you. I missed having you Stephon Gilmore is not perennial. Not, just isn't. I missed having you here, Sam. So, you know, just get a little better, a little bit better with your use of words is all I'm saying. All right, Stephon Gilmore, perennial, really good corner. Mm. Um, didn't have as great of a year last year. We know cornerback play can be uh, can be a little volatile, but he's been in a very challenging man-heavy system. Um, I could see him being out in New England. This has been rumored for a couple of years. I could see him being out. 
the concern from a Patriot standpoint is they really haven't replenished the secondary in a couple of years, right? I mean, they did such a good job building it up, and it was Stephon Gilmore and J.C. Jackson and Jason McCourty, Jonathan Jones. They've got all these all these guys, and they, you know, it's slowly starting to uh, fall apart if, if they do have to end up trading Gilmore. As far as teams that need him, boy, the Packers come to mind, even though Eric Stokes was their first-round draft pick and they brought back Kevin King. But the Packers come to mind. The Arizona Cardinals come to mind. A team that has that number two cornerback spot uh, completely wide open. Kansas City Chiefs, another team. They've made do with lesser name corners over the last couple of years, but they could absolutely be in that mix. And I'm trying to find there was at least – oh, and then the Saints are the other team. Uh, the Saints and the Cardinals are the uh, – Saints, Cardinals, and the Packers are the two teams where I look and I say – First cornerback spot's pretty good, but number two is a massive weakness that that needs to be addressed, and I could see those teams all very much in the mix for Gilmore. As much as the Saints are like the living proof of the salary cap is a myth kind of thing, I honestly don't think the Saints could make a move for Stephon Gilmore. I think I think they're struggling to sign their rookie class right now, and from what I understand, they've run out of people that they can like actually make an obvious salary cap saving with. So. As much as the Saints are always able to make a move, you know, I just I can't see how they can make that happen. My question is, is Stephon Gil how many schemes right now is Stephon Gilmore a good fit for, given where he is, which is not where he was a couple of years ago? So yeah. Stephon Gilmore is coming off a season in which he had a PFF grade of sixty-one, um, which obviously a massive step down from where he was the season before. So we're only one year removed from one of his best years but over the last few years his pff grade in zone coverages is 10 points lower than it is in overall um, and significantly lower than it is against man co or in man coverage most of the league plays zone most of the time how good a fit is stefan gilmore for half those teams you just mentioned yeah i mean it's it's not great because there's yeah there's fewer teams now that patricia isn't running a team and that's independent in of the fact that he's like going to be 31 and you right. know reaching the period where you get twitchy about corners anyway I, yeah he's still good i mean he's still really good overall but you're right i mean his value was maximized when he went to new england remember even when he went to new england he had graded well in buffalo yeah. he had had some ups ups and downs but he went to new england and it was like all right you're playing press man that's all you're doing and he became a stud right and he started off slow honestly if you remember too when he first got to new england their 2017 team their defense was not good and early in the season, a lot of it was Gilmore not playing well. I mean, they lost a couple of games with holding penalties here and there. I mean, he wasn't good early on. And then he found his way. And from about the middle of 17, 18, 19, and early into 20, I mean, he was the best in the league as far as what he was asked to do and how he executed it. But you're right. There's not a whole lot of systems that are pure man heavy. But I don't know if teams are going to care that much. They're going to look at him and say, here's a really good corner on the market. Um, people are looking at his contract saying, well, he's making $7 million base here. They just they just threw a lot. I don't know what the reasoning was. I'll have to get Brad on here to discuss. But they threw a lot of money at him extra last year. They threw like $5 bucks at him. I think they just gave him money last year instead of this year. So the, the number looks bad this year. But he had a cap number of $23.9 last year. This year it's 16 when you include the, roster, the, the signing bonus and all that stuff. So I don't think it's as bad as it looks. But when you look at the course of his tenure – in New England, 
his cap number was under 10 for his first three years too so it was like all right, they're getting a lot of value out of him yeah for the, for the i money. mean and that's again when it's like a hallmark of the patriots as much as we think hey patriots do sometimes invest massive money in key positions like that even then they often don't like randy moss came when they traded for him on the proviso that he reworked his contract and it was a freaking steal Darrell Rivas was paid a decent chunk of money, but even that was probably less than he could have got elsewhere. Stephon Gilmore's deal was usually pretty team-friendly for the majority of the time. They still, you know, cheat the edges where they can. All right, I, I mentioned the Jets earlier, and then I want to circle back to the Rams really quick. But Robert Sala, the defense was running a coverage that vacated the middle of the field, and Zach Wilson and Braxton Berrios down the middle, and he just zipped it in there and didn't try to do anything cute with it. It just got to him in a hurry. We felt like it was a pretty veteran move. Robert Sala talking about Zach Wilson with a veteran move, essentially hitting a wide-open Braxton Barrios down the middle. <laughs> but that's what... That's so what good uh, veterans do. Yeah, that's what minicamp and all... You know, this is this is the fun, right? Well, that's what Dan oh, Marino quotes. did. Just hit the open guy. Um, it does sound like the arm strength, though. The velocity is impressive early on. Yeah, I mean, I think... So far, it sounds like Zach Wilson has been as advertised in terms of draft prospects. So that is probably all you can hope for at this point in terms of your young quarterback. Like, at least have him look good. If you're looking at young quarterbacks at this point, all they can do is fail to live up to expectations, right? This is an expected win in terms of the scenario they're put in. Defenses are not, you know, going 100%. It's easy. It's installs. It's day one stuff. If you're not looking good right now, it's probably a red flag. If you are looking good, okay, fine. We, that's what we want. It's so funny, the quotes, because I'm looking through these too. Like, the quotes about the rookies are basically, they're chucking it fast, mm. right? And then you get to the, like, one of the bullet points on the Giants quotes. Daniel Jones has great command of the huddle. So the veterans command the huddle. The young guys are toolsy, and they just, you know, throw the ball fast to their receivers. That's what we're seeing so far. Uh, Los Angeles Rams, here's one, right? Head coach Sean McVay. Jacob Harris is a guy that has definitely stood out. Just just his overall speed and athleticism, you kind of feel him on the field. But that's been in some of the limited seven-on-sevens and just kind of running routes on air. But he's a rookie that comes to mind if you're going to point out anyone in particular. So this is Sean McVay. It sounds like uh, reluctant praise when they wanted him to praise somebody in, you know, air, running routes on air. But the intriguing thing here is that Jacob Harris had an incredible vertical jump, broad yeah. jump, a 4.39 40-yard dash, and get this, a 6.54 three-cone, okay? The dude is 6.5. So for perspective, a three-cone of 7.2 would be like, wow, that's impressive. And he was 6.5, which is insane. We've that's talked about this faster before. than Christian McCaffrey, I think. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, all that is he had a 60.7 overall grade at UCF yeah. last year. Again, not an offense that's, you know— devoid of talent or a quarterback or anything like that so the actual football playing needs some work but when you look at this rams wide receiver depth chart robert woods cooper cup we know they're the stars van jefferson's there deshaun jackson's there they just drafted tutu atwell and jacob harris is in the mix with the size of a you know a small tight end uh it, it'll be interesting to see what the rams can do with all this talent it will, yeah. I mean, he was the guy, I think we mentioned him at some point during the pre-draft process as one of these guys that just had an insane workout given his size. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by what the Rams put together. They've That's a very interesting team going forward, not just because of the Matthew Stafford stuff, Sean McVay's offense taking a step forward. If it does, 
but the personnel that they have now is i think more interesting than it's been in the past few years where they've got the holdovers the guys like robert woods and cooper cup but they've added a lot to it okay they've lost guys like gerald everett in the process but i'm intrigued by the players that they have added to this offense i got a good one for you coming up oh i got a good one that you're gonna love first though pittsburgh steelers we need a couple more a couple more intriguing ones here juju smith schuster and i got you know pittsburgh radio my weekly radio hit they asked me about this what's juju smith's uh smith schuster's biggest goal in 2021 playing more outside it's as simple as that Hmm. so juju's one of those guys he averaged like nine yards per catch last year played 85 percent of his snaps in the slot so i was asked on radio you know is this a win for pittsburgh if juju plays more outside and i thought not really because i don't think he's better than deontay johnson or chase claypool on the outside and i think juju's better off in the slot now i wouldn't have him catching jets jet sweeps all the time or anything like that but i think juju maybe as a what he was when he entered the league which was a intermediate and vertical threat who also happened to line up in the slot i think that's his better use case than him you know with like six yards per target or whatever average depth of target but juju wants to play more outside which would be better for his free agent value but i don't know if that's better for the steelers no interestingly his grade over the last three years is better lined up outside than it is in the slot which is good job thank you which is what the reverse of what you would expect right it's 76.2 when lined up out wide um and it is loading 71.7 when lined up in the slot so it's it's the opposite of what you would expect that being is said, that because it's all the short stuff? Yes. And that being said, I agree with you that the problem is not just what is better for Juju. It's is he a better option in those spots than the players that he would be taking snaps away from? And I would say no. Like his biggest issue right now is like his entire career at this point is almost still an asterisk, right? It's this incredible season as the number two to Antonio Brown. And then the second Antonio Brown left, A, Juju's role was going to change and we were going to learn more about what he could do, whether he was just a product of Antonio Brown. But from that point, like injuries and the offense has declined, like everything else has changed. So we don't have this, um, we don't have this control of what that's supposed to look like, right? So if we had the exact same circumstances, his one breakout year opposite Antonio Brown, and we just took Antonio Brown out of the equation, what would that look like? Because everything else changed as well. So I think we're still sort of left not quite knowing what Juju can actually do from any of these alignments, whether it's from the slot, whether it's from out wide, because everything else has been an issue. So I think ultimately, you know, he signed a one-year deal because he was only getting one-year deals on the table. There's not a huge amount of confidence in what Juju is going to be in any scenario, whether it's a slot receiver, whether it's an out wide guy, he is going to get bumped down that depth chart as just a tertiary target um and he needs to show that he can be more than that where regardless of where he's lining up i will stick to my guns that pittsburgh's best bet is is throwing the ball more vertically uh letting deontay johnson's be the short and intermediate threat taking more shots to chase claypool even though he was hit or miss at the catch point last year but we saw the freak plays in there and then i think i think vertical vertical slot receiver for juju as well is their best bet but that it is a new system it's a new offensive coordinator we'll see what they end up doing um there's two more i want to get through this is this is the good one russell wilson on gabe jackson he's happy now 
Gabe Jackson is a spectacular football player. Mm-hmm. Watching his tape, watching his film, he is tough as nails. He can do everything. I'm excited to play behind him. He's a really special player. He's been great in meetings, too. So you were right. Told you. Cue the music. Sam was right. Mm-hmm. Gabe Jackson for a fifth-round pick was all the Seahawks needed to do to get back in Russ's good graces. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look, this is <laughs> it's what I said it was, right? Russell Wilson got upset, made it public, threw up a very obvious distress flare that, look, I don't know what – however you guys have been dealing with this in the past, behind the scenes, you know, quietly in meeting rooms, I'm not, I'm not happy with how it's going. And apparently, however I've been discussing this internally is not working. So I'm going to go on the Dan Patrick show and make some comments, and you guys are going to have to do something. And that's exactly what's happened. Like, that was the, – the difference between this and the Aaron Rodgers situation, like, is massive. Russell Wilson was just – I want to be in Seattle long-term for the rest of my career, always. I always want to be winning Super Bowls and games in Seattle. But I'm getting fed up with how this is working. I'm not being listened to. So let me just, you know, light a fire under them publicly. He did that. They answered. They didn't go crazy. They didn't go, right, well, our entire draft is going on offensive linemen. They went, okay, we've heard you. And whether or not this, we thought this was like a mutual decision to not really invest massively in the offensive line – Let's make a move to show you that we're listening. So Gabe Jackson, fifth-round pick, extend his contract, blah, blah, blah. Happy? And Russ is happy. Waxing poetic about Gabe Jackson. He's happy. Yeah. He is. It's all it took. You are completely. It's about time you were right about something, Sam. Uh-huh. Completely right. And there's actually two more. Okay, here we go. Tampa Bay Bucks offensive coordinator Byron Leftwich. It's all over Jalen Darden's college tape. Very fast. Very similar mannerisms to Antonio Brown. I think it'll be good that he's in the same room with him. Skill sets are similar. Obviously, that's a big order to put on anybody. But I just remember A.B. being a rookie, being a player on that team. They were very similar football players. Thoughts on Jalen Darden being Antonio Brown comped here. By the way, I'm in the middle of my you know dynasty draft here. Mm-hmm. Darden is uh, is out there. We combined. So you got like NFL rookies that haven't been picked yet. And also you could draft guys that haven't played a college snap yet. High school recruits. We could We could pick anybody. I might pick Darden. I hope nobody's listening I, for my league. My pick's coming up soon. I might grab Darden after this quote. I mean, I love Darden. He was one of my favorite players of the draft. Um, not a big receiver, but really fast. He's another guy whose workouts were insane. Only, in, in quotation marks, ran a 4-4-6. A four, four, but his three-cone was 6-6-6. Six, six, six. His short shuttle was under four seconds, which is pretty nuts. Yeah. Like his change of direction skills are pretty crazy. His speed vertically from the slot is pretty crazy. I think he can do everything that Antonio Brown can do within that offense. And again, like this offseason for the Bucks was about building in contingency, right? And what happens if these guys go down? Um, they, they did that on the defensive line. They did that on the offensive line. They've done that in the receiver room. So Jalen Darden, in addition to bringing some return game uh, chops with him, is Antonio Brown contingency. Like, what? look, <laughs> like, okay. So far, Antonio Brown has dodged various, you know, legal issues down the line. On the other hand, Antonio Brown is quite clearly a nutcase who is only ever five minutes away from getting himself into more trouble. So building in a, a like-for-like contingency with Antonio Brown can only be smart. Yeah, I mean, Darden, there could be a role. He'd be, he's the sixth receiver on the team. Like, let's be serious. Yeah, but Scotty the Miller's fact that the four, his it, special teams thing will, should... He'll, 
He'll be active. Yes. Is the thing, right? So Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Antonio Brown, best trio in the NFL. Scotty Miller and Tyler Johnson could be the best four and five in the NFL, right? Scotty Miller is going to get his deep targets. Tyler Johnson's a pretty good outside receiver that's filled in. But Darden could have a role because he's probably the he's potentially the best short area slot receiver that they don't use a ton, but there could be a world where he's going to see some snaps. I mean, there's also like Tyler Johnson's roster spot is not necessarily secure. I mean, he was a fifth round. He was a fifth rounder. Ago. Yeah. Now he played well, like he flashed some talent and made some big plays. But now, like you have a sixth guy in in Darden who brings returns uh, return skills as well, who's going to be like if you're. The bottom of the roster is always this numbers game and where do we want to keep, you know, the contingency? Where do we want to keep the extra guy? Like, if they don't want to keep six receivers, Tyler Johnson is the guy on the hot seat. All right, here's the last one. It's the Washington football team. It's wide receiver Curtis Samuel. Moving around the field is great. It's fun just being in different parts of the field, creating so many mismatches for the team, being able to move around. It confuses a defense to open up things for other guys. It makes it tough on defensive coaches because they got a game plan differently. Remember, Samuel's coming off his breakout year in Carolina. Last year at this time, when I was breaking down the receiving cores, I was like, man, they're using Curtis Samuel as a traditional receiver. This was up until 2019. Mm -hmm. And he had the lowest completion percentage when targeted on 20-plus yard passes. He just didn't look right as like a traditional outside receiver running the vertical route tree. But last year, they did move him around, used him really well. He was productive. He gets paid in free agency. The question still is, are you – make sure like if you're Washington make sure you're using him in that role and early quotes sound like hey they're gonna at least think about doing that which would be smart he needs to spend some time in the backfield this year um that was the big difference between last season in Carolina and the previous years which happened to be under Ron Rivera um like this was he was that hybrid role in college at Ohio State under Urban Meyer came to Carolina and they did just make him a wide receiver um, and then only last year did he spend, I think, like 80-plus snaps in the backfield, which was basically matching what he, the total of what he had in his career before that. So it, it's a little bit like, you know, um, Ty Montgomery, where coming out of college at Stanford, Ty Montgomery was not a natural receiver. It was just a playmaker that they got the ball in the hands of however they could do it, bubble screens, all that kind of standard stuff, the wildcat snaps, whatever. And then – so the NFL was like, all right, let's make him into a wide receiver. And then he wasn't great at that. So then he, they moved him back to be running back. Um, he felt like a running back to me coming out, but they moved him there full time. And it's like, so I think the sort of the failure at wide receiver was good for his running back ability. You know what I mean? Like getting to the point where he was a failed wide receiver gave him plus skills in that area compared with a running back. And I think Curtis Samuel may never be a great wide receiver, but it might make him a great hybrid weapon. Like if you make him just good enough at wide receiver so that when you start putting him in the backfield, he now becomes a massive problem, that's where the gains are to be had. And I still think that this world of wide receivers moving into the backfield is a massive headache for defenses. And the Panthers did it last year with Samuel, Washington or Ron Rivera has not done it with Curtis Samuel, but has had Curtis Samuel in the past. So the Washington football team is stacked with these guys that can all do that. Antonio Gibson was a college receiver, hybrid weapon. Um, Curtis Samuel, like 
JD McKissick. JD McKissick was yeah. the guy doing it all last year. They are loaded with these players that can all move from the backfield to out wide and back again that can just cause an endless nightmare for defenses. But last year they really didn't do much of it. And the, the only guy that they had doing it was McKissick, who's the one guy that, okay, of those three, who are you least concerned about you know, moving somewhere else? Um, so I just want to see evidence that they're doing that as opposed to you know, lip service, essentially. All right, Sam. That was good. I, I enjoy some of the quotes. Not like this guy's in the best shape of his career or this guy. Um, one did um, come through the wire, by the way. The wire. The wire. Um, I did see on Twitter. This was live. Oh, man. Where did it go? Hmm. It was about J.J. Arasega Whiteside. Oh. It was something like, it's time for him. You know, one of those. Yeah. All right, man. You've, uh, you have not lived up to the hype, but uh, it's... Oh, here we go. Uh, Mike K, his, uh, his tweet. Facing a make-or-break summer, Eagles wide receiver J.J. Arcega-Whiteside is in a quote-unquote great place, according to wide receivers coach Aaron Moorhead. Position coach talks about J.J. A.W.'s outlook heading into camp. Some You get stuff like that where it's like, this is basically like, all right, it's make-or-break time, and you're, you know, guys, feeling pretty good. Um, you can't really glean much for those. I do think you can glean stuff. The Mike Williams one's the biggest one, I think, for the Chargers. If they're going to completely give away their strategy of how they're using him or the role he's playing, there's, there are some interesting things here. Um, I want to wrap it up with this. We're, we're enjoying your emails, nflpodcast at pff.com. Connor Gentis, is that my, am I pronouncing that right? Sure. Connor Gentis sends in. Uh, he's yeah. going to be our listener of the week. Oh, nice. We might do this by show. We might have two listeners of the week. Hmm. But the listener of the week for this show is Connor, who uh, brings up a question about long snapping. <laughs> what? Do it. Okay. This is our specialty. Fine. Is long snapping such a rarefied talent that the notion of teaching a backup linebacker how to long snap is beyond impossible? Like, who is the Chip Engeland? Can you pronounce that for me? Revered Spurs, Spurs shooting coach of you're, long snapping. You're the... Uh, Engeland? You're the pronunciation master. I, I defer to you. Don't make me do this. I try to, try to get some confirmation on your end. Why not employ that guy and save yourself a roster spot? So he's basically saying, why can't any old idiot long snap? Or why can't you just hire the right coach to teach anybody to long snap, save yourself a roster spot? Jared Allen came into the league as a long snapper. I, I would, that's the type of long snapper I want. Yeah, guy Whereas, who can also be a Hall of Fame pass rusher. That'd be my, useful. My friend Zach Diossi came into the league as a linebacker, turned you know 15-year long snapper. Yeah, so 13, whatever. I guess point number one is I think it probably is such a rarefied talent. Like, the you know. there's 32 of them in the world. There's 32 opportunities in the world. But also, it's it's more complicated than you think it is, right? Like, there the number of rotations in the ball in the snap is important, right? Those kinds of things. It's not just like can you get the ball back to the spot vaguely at the right time, vaguely in the right direction, just to the point where the the holder can catch it, put it down, and good. Like. The speed, the operation speed, how fast it gets back is a really important thing. The number of rotations in the ball is an important thing so they can just catch, put it down, done. I think it is a much more difficult task than people typically think it is and certainly much more difficult to be really good at it. The other thing I think, so you get a lot of these types of questions where people are trying to cheat a roster spot in various different ways. There's another one that somebody has asked that, we might get to at some point that is essentially like, you know, the league, 
they've been chasing Aussie rules like punters for years, you know, like decades at this point, right? The, the, it's a, another sport that essentially does that all the time. So you bring them over, they're natural punters, and they can do it. Like Michael Dixon just became the highest paid punter in the league, right? Aussie yep. rules guy. But Aussie, like if you ever watch Aussie rules, those guys are physical monsters that do a lot of hitting and tackling and stuff as well. So, like, why not make the punt? Like, why not ask the punter to do a little bit more and just hoof the ball down the field? Essentially, is what this guy's asking. And if your punter can do more than just every now and again belt the ball down there and then chill playing Nintendo for the rest of his time, that's probably useful. Cheat a roster spot somewhere. So you want to have a punter slash like kickoff coverage guy, or a punter slash safety, like punter oh. slash something, right? Th- these guys are legitimate athletes a lot of the time. Let's not paint that brush for the entirety of the uh, the punting oh, fraternity. Where there's a lot of Aussie rules guys that are like legit I athletes. I hope McAfee's right? not listening. Punter of the decade. Well, he'd be in there. Like, he'd be the athlete. That dude well, hit yeah, people. I've seen him do, like, shooting star presses off the top onto the floor. Yeah, he's a good athlete. Also, he, like, I've seen him bury people in terms of hitting on kickoffs, right? More importantly, he could do a shooting star press. Right. The point is... There are a bunch of Aussie rules guys that can A, punt the ball, and B, do a bunch of other things for you. They're legitimate athletes, but the NFL is only interested in them as punters. Let's get McAfee on the show and see if this is a legitimate thing. So anyway, generally people are trying to cheat roster spots in all different ways. And the the other one that comes up every now and again is like, how hard is punting and kicking as, you know, separate skills? Surely, given that the kickers and the punters don't actually do an awful lot for most of their time, they have enough spare time that you could teach one to do the other, right? The, what's his name? Kari Vedvik. That was his big selling point, right? When the Vikings traded a fifth-round pick or a seventh-round pick for him, ultimately to see him flame out. But it didn't work. It was a selling point, right? This guy can kick and punt. It's great. So everybody's always trying to cheat that last roster spot. I think ultimately the reason teams don't do it is because that last roster spot really doesn't matter. Like as much as we hand-wringing and, oh, no, what are we going to do? Who's going to be the last guy to go on cut-down day? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, whenever, the, whenever an important player gets injured, you're not putting the last guy on the roster in any way. You're signing somebody off the street, and the last guy on the roster is getting kicked to the curb. The 90th guy or the 53rd man on your roster ultimately is not that important, and having a solid kicker or a punter kind of is. I was, I was thinking about this the other day because I do think teams put a – I mean, they should. They put a lot of time and effort into the bottom of their roster. Yes. And, and, but there's a lot of churn there. So if there's churn, it's – in 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 theory, it is because it is less valuable. I mean, it's like if you're obviously the the quarterback's the most important decision, right? And build you know, your receivers and your starting corners; those are the most important decisions. But I mean, it's like deciding where to live is more important. Where your house is or where you're going to live is more important than you know what you're going to have to eat this Friday night, right? I mean, that's the difference in value and return. Um, but if you are going to steal that last roster spot, I think there's an interesting discussion to be had as far as like what you would want, like. If you were going to have, say, the Bucks example, a sixth wide receiver, just to make sure that you kept, say, Scotty Miller active so you could take three deep shots a game with him because one of them could be a 50-yarder. I feel like that payoff is far greater than just like a guy making a special teams tackle or whatever it might be, right? So it is an interesting discussion as to what to do to me, the with those easiest, extra roster spots. The easiest roster spot in the league to cheat and to save and get spare is the guy that's there for his veteran presence, right? The guy that's 37 years old, whether it's quarterback or another position, the guy that, and it's usually quarterback, the guy that's deep into his 30s cannot play for you. Like, you do not want this guy on the field, but you really love what he brings to the meeting room 
um, to his veteran mentor role for a younger quarterback that you've got who you do have hope in and all those kinds of things. And you're burning a roster spot on this guy when essentially nothing is stopping you from just hiring him as a position coach or a invented role, right? Position coaches get paid a lot less than quarterbacks that are 15 years in the league. So that's one of the reasons why those guys still exist. But if you're like, there's no cap on how much you can spend on a coaching staff, right? It might screw up your like, whatever you're hiring, your salary cap structure is, or your salary structure is on that side. But literally nothing is stopping you from saying to this guy, I will give you the same amount, I'll give you more, right? Because you have no shot of ever seeing an NFL field again. I'll give you more to do exactly the same thing as you're doing now, just not in shoulder pads. How do you like? How would you feel about that? Same thing for like any veteran that you do not want on the field at any given point, right? Just make those guys position coaches, save their roster spot, and all you got to do is convince them that their NFL career is essentially over. And you're the one who's all touchy feely about backup quarterbacks and the feelings of the quarterback, and you don't want a nice locker room guy on your team. I do. I just don't want burn. I don't want to burn a roster spot on Jason Witten. I want, yeah, Jason, <laughs> perfect example. Jason Witten had no business being on the field last year. And he knew that. That's why he retired. So all you had to do was convince him. I mean, he'd already retired. All you had to do was say, Jason, the, 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 the gig in the booth is not working out for you, okay? There's only so many rabbits you can pull out of your head before we all admit that this is a train wreck. Your, your, <laughs> your broadcast team is getting drop kicked out of the building. How about you come back to football? Now, there's going to be a change. Instead of you being in the locker room and, you know, doing things like running. Here's your polo. Right. Running a five-yard out and going nowhere. What we're going to do is have you as a position I, coach. I liked when they just got the ball to Witten in the flat. When it was like, all of his routes. It was all in the flat. We just got to get the ball into Jason's hands in the flat and see what he could do. But, with like, it. seriously, all you have to do is give him a polo and set. It's like, same access to the locker room, Jason. You have exactly the same gig. The only difference is on Sunday, you're not putting on pads and a helmet. Anyway, that was great. So that's that's Connor, our listener of the week for the day. Listener of the week for the show. But answering his question, I think long snapping actually is probably that difficult. And to answer your question about why can't a punter just play safety, I, I, think, it, I think it's similar, though. There's 32 roles. There's 32 of them. You have to be legit at punter. Because if you're the guys that are worse, you're talking about like ten yards of but, field position. But punting, they're already good at that. The point you about can't Aussie rule it anyway, just because of the football, the NFL rules, though. What you can't like, you can't do like rollouts and, and things like that. You can't do a lot of the Aussie rule no, stuff. I'm, not, I'm talking about like and he's already a good enough Michael Dixon, right? Now I I haven't paid enough attention to Michael Dixon running around to know what kind of athlete he is, right? Let's assume for a moment, for the purpose of this discussion, Michael Dixon is a top-tier Aussie rules athlete who can actually run around and hit people at the same time, right? He's already a top-tier NFL punter. They've already paid him safety? a bunch of money. At some point in general NFL practice, like an hour passes, the punters and the kickers have done all they need to do. They then feck off back to the, the building and just play video games all day. Instead, how about you say, all right, your kicking time is done. Over here with the second team defense, Michael. Third team defense. Whatever. Over here with the, the backups, you've got some real football to do. Uh, so that remind, that would be like my baseball analogy is like asking pitchers to hit, right? There's a reason why when pitchers hit, it looks so bad on the field. They're paid to pitch. Hmm. But every now and again, you run into a great hitting pitcher. He's not in most of them, other than Otani with the Angels, most of them 
are great for pitchers, but they're not great compared to actual hitters. They would never be on the field. But there's, you know, once in a blue moon, you have a, a pitcher that's good enough. I guess if you had that right player, I just think it would be so rare. Because you're, you're, your, your pool is one of the 32 starting punters. You're saying one of the 32 starting punters has to be my third string safety or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but the point is you're already, so you're already drafting. So you're already self-selecting from this group of Aussie rules players, right? It's not like you're, it's not like you're just getting punters, finding one who's in the top 32 and has a job, and then hoping he's also capable of doing other things. Like you're, you're drafting from this pool of players in terms of football generally is scouting Aussie rules players to be punters. So you're already taking from a sport that has athletes like you're not taking from a bunch of guys that are just useless but happen to be able to kick you're grabbing players from a sport that does all this stuff as well so most of those guys should be able to do more than you're asking them to do and even if it's not third string safety maybe it's just they play all the other special teams units as well right so while you know in addition to punting you're also l2 on the the kickoff unit you're you know I can't see any reason they shouldn't be able to do that kind of L2 stuff. L two on the kickoff unit, I could see a little bit better. The other problem, though, is if they get hurt, who's your backup? Now that is honestly probably the single biggest thing against it. Is if you get that guy hurt, you suddenly don't have a punter. So that's why Connor is the uh, the listener of the week for the show because it just triggers all sorts of great conversation. You guys can do that too. NFL podcast at pff.com. Also, don't forget our friends over at Symbol and Underdog Fantasy. Some great deals going on right now. Fantasy season starting all across the world. The, the the uptick in people wanting fantasy is just through the roof right now. PFF.com is exactly where you need to be with that, especially our best ball package. It is awesome. So go check it out all, all at PFF.com. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. You going to be back on Thursday? I'll think about be it. Back for good? No more vacation? Mm, we'll see. All right, good. Well, it's good to have you back. Thanks. All right. See you guys on Thursday. Appreciate it.